Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. This is the word of the Lord. I did get clarification last week. The red is not for the, uh, the dragon, but it's more for the Phillies? Oh, no. No, I guess autumn colors. Yeah, okay. Okay, hey, follow me on this for a second. Who would we say, speaking of the Phillies, who would we say right now are the mortal enemies of the Philadelphia Phillies? Houston Astros, right? Okay, follow me here. And who would we say is the perpetual mortal enemy of the Philadelphia Eagles? Cowboys. Follow me. What state are these two, two uh, <laughs> cities from? Right? And did you know that last year, the Texas state legislator was very productive? They enacted all sorts of new laws and statues, and they unleashed them all in one day. I think it was in September of last year. Do you know how many laws and statutes they unleashed in one day? Anybody know? Take a guess. 666. Now look, I'm not saying... I spent way too much time this week trying to find a connection between <laughs> Houston or Jerry Jones or whatever with 666, right? Because that's what you do, right? When you come to Revelation chapter 13, you see that number 666, that's what you're supposed to do. You, you go hide yourself away in the bathroom, you get out your secret decoder ring, and you start to, you know, figure out uh, the secrets of the end times. And are we getting closer to the end times as I can figure out who this mark of the beast is and who's going around stamping people on the forehead and what that? Hopefully, uh, if you've been tracking with us here as we've been working through the book of Revelation for the better part of several months, hopefully you know that uh, my perspective is that's not the best way to handle uh, the, the rich symbolism of the book of Revelation, right? That the goal of Revelation is not to be this secret thing that we decode to give us insights into the, the end times and when the end times are coming and what they're going to be all about. It's something much bigger than that. And also, hopefully, you have heard me say enough by now that to do that, to, have, to look at the book of Revelation only with this 
This fixation on what is yet to come is to miss its power. Right? And then the book of Revelation, among a whole bunch of other things, has great power and challenge and admonition and encouragement for the church in the present. And if you ask me, uh, chapter 13 packs quite a wallop in terms of a challenge and admonition and encouragement. Chapters 12 and 13, you know, for me, we're really getting to the heart of the book here. Chapters 12 and chapter 13 have been uh, very impactful in my own life. They've been very influential in changing the way that I look at the world around me. Uh, They've been very influential in shaping the way I think about what the business of the church is and what it means to be a pastor. Uh, And I would also say, too, that when maybe about a year ago, when I started to pray about, you know, a new book or a new series to move into in the new year, uh, it seemed like God was bringing to mind Revelations 12, Revelation 12 and 13, very significantly. So I think there's a lot in here, which is all to say, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time getting out a secret decoder ring and trying to figure out six sixes. There's much, something much bigger than that, which I think the number points to. And that's what I'm aiming at this morning. I want you to see uh, some strong challenge that it would hold out for you. And I want you to see, too, why the main imperative of the chapter is this calls for wisdom. Right? Last week, the main imperative, this calls for faithful endurance. Today, it's this calls for wisdom. And I want you to see why that's such an important call and a, such an important business of the church in the present age. Okay? So that's where we're going today. Uh, hopefully, we'll make good sense of it together. Uh, but to do that, to get there, first of all, we've got to review a little bit. All right? Make sure we're all on the same page. As we say each week, right? Revelation, this magnificent book of apocalyptic literature, right? This strange form of literature that we're not too used to, but presents its truth and presents its message to us in rich, graphic, symbolic imagery, right? And part of the goal of that imagery is to kind of pull back the curtains so that you can see, like it captures your, your imagination, it captures your mind's eye, right? To give you a glimpse at some of the deeper things that are going on behind the scenes in life, in life in this full period of time between the resurrection of Christ and his enthronement, right, the first Easter event, and the time when he returns to bring to conclusion his great redemptive operation, right, his great mission of new creation, right? So it's pulling back the curtain on that period of time in the in-between, showing you some deeper realities to life. Okay, and as we've been settling here and slowing down just a little bit here in chapters 12 and 13, you know, part of the message here is that, okay, behind some of the realities of life, in particular, behind some of the struggles and some of the tension and the strife and the bitterness and the division that's happening in life, which we see all over the place, behind all of that, uh, there are spiritual dynamics and there are spiritual entities Warring for your soul, warring for your worship, warring for your faithful allegiance and obedience, right? 
the book of Revelation would say to anybody, again, we've talked about this, like if you tend to think that the problems and the struggles and the issues and the evil injustices of the world are just natural phenomenon or just the problems of people who are just gone slightly off track, like the book of Revelation would challenge you to say, yeah, that's a naive look at the world around you. There are spiritual dimensions and dynamics to life that you would do well to take note of and have concern for and develop wisdom in relation to. Okay, so we're, we're getting introduced in chapters 12 to some of those spiritual entities. In particular, we're being introduced to the main enemy, the main opposition, Satan himself, who is symbolically portrayed as this fiery red dragon in chapter 12. Okay, and when we first met this fiery red dragon, he's in a bit of a bad mood <laughs> because he suffered this climactic defeat. Right? With the resurrection and the enthronement of Jesus Satan has been cast out of heaven, and he has suffered this climactic defeat. I was, I was with some friends over the weekend, and we got to talking about uh, how they're going to an Anglican church down in North Carolina right now. One, as we were talking about that, they were saying, you know, one thing the Anglicans do really well is Easter. They said, you know, when you come into their, their church on Easter, everybody is given little cowbells and sticks, Right? And when they open the service and they announce Jesus has risen, they don't do like we do. And we all say, he has risen indeed. The whole place erupts and people are banging on the cowbell. It sounds like Citizens Bank Park when Bryce Harper went, you know, hits a home run or something along those lines. Right? The whole place erupts in celebration because they get it, right? That's, that's the point. The resurrection of Christ, his enthronement at the right hand of the Father was, man, this climactic victory has been accomplished over these spiritual enemies, right? It's cause for rich celebration and joy. But for the dragon, it's cause for rage. And what we saw is he's taking all that rage and he's turning that rage towards the church, the people of God, the family of God, or more specifically, the people who are called to take that celebration, to take that news that there is a new king on the throne and he is advancing this new, more glorious kingdom. The people who are called to take that message to the ends of the earth, right? The dragon is turning his rage towards those people to either oppress them, snuff them out, or, as we'll see today, just maybe knock them off course. Okay? And what we're starting to see, chapter 13, how he goes about doing that. And so we were introduced in chapter 13, the beginning last week, to this hideous monster, this beast that rises up out of the abyss, the sea, right? And this monster has seven heads. Each head has ten horns and his crowns on the horns. He's got the mouths of lions. He's got wings like an eagle. He's got a body like a leopard. And we talked about last week. I hate to say it. If you weren't here last week or you haven't heard the message from last week, yeah, you might want to do that to get you, or, or it might, well, anyway, they all kind of go together. But we talked about last week how this is borrowed imagery from Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel has a dream and he sees four beasts, one like a lion, one like a leopard, one like an eagle, one on their undescript ones. And he's told these beasts represent kingdoms and thrones and emperors and empires who are going to oppress and wage against God's people. Right? And so we talked about how when you come into Revelation 13, you see this one beast. It's a conglomeration of all those Old Testament beasts. Right? The symbolism here is that this is symbolic of, yeah, 
kingdoms and thrones and positions of power that wage against God's people. Okay? Try to suppress them, snuff out their witness, even if it means killing them. Which brings us to beast number two. <laughs> right? the, the, the beast that comes up, not out of the sea, but out of the land. And, and, and while I want to talk about this beast, I want you to see the differences between this beast and the other beast. We want to start there. Whereas the first beast was this hideous monster, right, with all these heads and horns and everything. Like this beast that would make you, when you see it, either run in terror or do everything you could to get on his good side so that he doesn't unleash his rage against you. Uh, this second beast, not so much. Right, this beast, in distinction with the first one, he doesn't come out of the sea, he comes out of the land. And again, that's some significant symbolism in the ancient world, the sea, unless you were like a really skilled ship captain or whatever, like for everybody else, the sea was the abyss of chaos, right? It was a dreadful place where, you know, the, uh, it was the abode of these monsters of chaos who just whose sole intent was to plunge the world back into chaos and evil and all that stuff, right? It was a terrifying place versus the land. The land was familiar, it was stable, it was safe, it was kind of homey, right? It was comfortable. Ah, the dry land, right? It's like when you get off of a ship, maybe or a boat you've been on a little while and you've been rocking back and forth and your stomach is all queasy and you get off the boat and you step on the land. Ah, this, this is familiar. This feels like home. You want to get down and kiss the ground or whatever, you know? Same way, right? This beast comes out of the land. This beast doesn't have seven heads all waving around there. He's only got one head. He doesn't have ten horns. He's only got two horns. Right? He's not nearly as intimidating and scary. In fact, did you pick it up? What, what other animal does he sort of look like a little bit? He, he looks a little bit like a lamb. Did you pick that out? Which should tell you everything that you need to know about this beast. right? Because right, the lamb... The lamb that was slain, right? That's the other main animal character in the book. And who does the lamb represent? Jesus. Right? So this beast has a little Christ-likeness to him, if you will. Right? Which is what makes him perhaps even worse than the first one. Right? Because there's something true and good and Christ-likeness about him. Or as we talked about last week, he's a counterfeit. Right? It's part of how Satan works. He dabbles in counterfeits. Actually, this beast is a counterfeit of a couple things. He's sort of a counterfeit of Jesus. Maybe more, he's a counterfeit of the Holy Spirit, right? Because again, how does the, how does the dragon operate? He operates as an unholy trinity. The dragon, the beast from the sea, the beast from the land. Right? He's mocking, he's aping, he's counterfeiting the true holy trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Right? And if you are familiar with John, the writer, his theology and his other books, and in particular the way John will talk about the Holy Spirit or how he records Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit, you see a lot of similarities, right? The Holy Spirit is the one who comes and can breathe new life into people and, and who can, well, if he wants, he can perform signs and wonders and he can stir in the hearts of people, worship and faithfulness, and allegiance, and obedience to Christ. 
Or, you know, Jesus will say, when this spirit comes, when this comforter comes, he will not speak on his own, or he'll not speak on his own authority, or he'll not be speaking new, grand revelation, right? He, everything he speaks, it's pointing back to me, Christ says. He's pointing back to Christ, okay? Which is exactly what this beast from the land does. He doesn't come speaking on his own authority. He doesn't come speaking new, fresh revelation. Everything he does, it's pointing back to the beast from the sea. There's actually one other little bit of counterfeiting going on here. Did you pick it up as well, too? Even as this beast is able to work signs and wonders and make people worship and obey, part of what he does, it says he even calls down fire from heaven to the earth to make the people marvel and say, wow. So here's a question. Where have we seen that before in the biblical drama? Who else has called down fire from heaven, which switched the people's worship and allegiance at the moment? Remember Elijah on Mount Carmel? When he did that to prove the truthfulness of the true God. And why that's significant, right? The Old Testament closes at the end of Malachi chapter 4. It closes on this note that the great day of the Lord is coming. The king, the long-awaited Messiah, the the faithful one of God's people is on his way. But before he comes, I will send my prophet Elijah to prepare the way. And when you come into the New Testament, the New Testament says, who does New Testament point to as the one who is the spirit of Elijah? John the Baptist, right? And what was John the Baptist's whole role and purpose and mission? It was to point past himself to the one who is yet to come, to Christ, the true, holy, anointed son. Okay, which is exactly what this beast does. This, that's the job and the role of this beast. He is to point everyone back in worship and allegiance and faithfulness to the beast from the sea. Which is also why this beast throughout the rest of the book is actually going to be called the false prophet. And so that's probably how we'll try to refer to him now. So we got the dragon, we have the beast, and the false prophet, this unholy trinity. Right, and before we go on, like... I know we emphasized this point last week, but I don't know if we can emphasize it enough. Like, just understand that this is how Satan works. He dabbles in counterfeits, right? And the whole point of a counterfeit, or a counterfeit that's worth, that's worth anything, is that it's going to be really close to the original, right? You don't go to the grocery store with a green piece of cardboard. You've drawn some stick figures on the front and a couple 20 on the side. There you go. No, you try to find paper that feels the same, looks the same. Somehow you get the print, you download the image on it. Not that I've ever done this, but I would assume that's how you do it. And you print it out and you go to the grocery store and you try to slip it in past them before they even notice and off you go, right? Right in the same way, this is how this false prophet works. Sometimes Satan works in this dramatic beast, snuff you out. Other times he works like a false prophet. It's almost like good cop, bad cop kind of thing. And you see those little cop dramas where... You know, one cop comes in, guy's in the interrogation room, walks in, grabs his head, smacks it off the table and says, you're going to tell me everything I need to know. And the other, the nice cop comes in, sits down, you know, brings him a cup of coffee. Don't worry about him, but look, it will go well for you. Just tell us what we need to know. We'll send you home, we'll go back to your family and all that. Right, that's sort of the picture here, right? It's good cop, bad cop. And this cop, this beast... This false prophet, he looks like a lamb. And he comes in, he dabbles with counterfeits. counterfeits. It looks like the real thing. To allure you, to knock you off track. In other words, Satan doesn't always come to you and say, 
Look at this magnificent lie that I have crafted. Believe this lie. No, it comes more subtly. And he plays on your, I don't know, he plays on your rights and privileges. He plays on your desires. Like he comes to you like he came to Jesus in the wilderness, right? You remember that whole scene where Jesus is in the wilderness? Satan doesn't come to him tempting him with money, sex, power, pleasure, whatever, right? He comes way more subtly than that. Jesus, you haven't eaten 40 days. Look at you. Look at you. You're half dead. You can take that rock and turn it into a piece of bread. Do that. Eat some bread for goodness sake. But there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with eating some bread, especially if you haven't eaten in 40 days. Right? But Jesus knows. He's not just lost in the wilderness. The Spirit has led him out in the wilderness. And perhaps part of the reason the Spirit has led him out into the wilderness is so that before he begins his public sacrificial ministry, he would learn more fully what it means to rely and depend on God as his provider, and his caretaker. And so he responds to Satan, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Or when Satan takes him up onto the high place and says, hey, you see all these kingdoms out there? I'll give them to you. All you got to do is bow the knee to me. Which might seem like it's a temptation to power. But I don't think it is. I think it's a temptation to avoid suffering. I think Satan knows that Jesus is here to deliver and to rescue the kingdoms. And Satan says, here, I'll give them to you. You can have them. And you can have them without the cross. All you got to do is just bow the knee to me. What does Jesus say? You only worship the Lord your God. Or again, he takes him up to a high place and says, well, hey, if you're going to go down that road, you better throw yourself off here and make sure that God's going to catch you when you fall. He even quotes scripture, right? How insidious can you get? He's even quoting scripture to say, and God will command his angels to bear you up, lest, you know, and on he goes. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not what this is about, right? We're not called to waver. We're not called to doubt. We're not called to test the Lord. So I think part of what Revelation would have us do this morning is ask the question, okay, do you see Satan working like in this way in your own life? Maybe you haven't seen him in bold, flamboyant ways, but do you hear him or can you notice in subtle ways where he might be trying to knock you off track or knock you off mission? Maybe he's coming and he's appealing to your, your rights and your privileges and your sense of fairness. And, say, and maybe he's coming and saying, yeah, okay, it's great that you're serving Jesus and all that, but... Man, come on, you're, you're being dragged through the mud here, and it's not right, it's not fair. Look, just come follow me a little bit, and we'll, we'll make that right. Or maybe appeals to your desires or your needs. You need to be loved, you need to be respected, you need for security and peace and all this. And maybe he comes to you and says, man, isn't this great, all this hard work that you're doing, everything you're pouring your life into, Man, it's really bad that, uh, that, you're, that you're having to struggle so much and there's so much suffering and it's so much so painful and you're missing out on it. Look, you deserve this. You're entitled to this. So come with me and, and we'll patch you up. Right? And, and hear me out. Uh, I'm not saying here that God is not concerned about your rights or that God is not concerned about your, your needs. Or your desires. All I'm saying is that Satan is very concerned with those things too. And he would love to use those to knock you off course. To get you astray from whatever calling and mission God would have for you. Right? Remember, the picture of Revelation. We are a people called and sent. But we are also a people being nurtured and cared for in wilderness terrain. Satan loves that. 
Gives them all sorts of material to poke and pry at and say, man, you're feeling this. This isn't good. You shouldn't be feeling this. Come follow me. I'll help you out. Okay, so there's a ton we could talk about with that, and we'll, we'll, we'll get more of that as we keep working through the book. But there's one other thing that we have to see. It's which is a little bit more difficult, sometimes borderline controversial, if you will, but to ignore it would be to do injustice to the text or to not to treat the text fairly. And to, to talk about this real quick, I need you to remember, okay, last week when we talked about, you know, beast number one, the beast, right, who was symbolic of kings and empires and political seats of power that wage against God's people. And we said, you know, part of the way of understanding a revelation rightly is putting yourself as best you can in the mindset of the original audience, the people to whom the book was, was originally written and given to, and say, hey, do you guys have any sense of what this beast might represent in your day and age? Are there any kingdoms or empires or kings that are oppressing and persecuting? I say, well, yeah, of course there is. Right? That's, that's Rome. Right? Rome has been given worldwide dominion, power, and authority. Right? This Rome is going around proclaiming blasphemous things about its sovereignty and its sovereign entitlement. And, and Rome is making life a living hell for us if we don't bow the knee in full, undivided allegiance and loyalty and instead reserve some of that loyalty and allegiance for Christ and his kingdom. And so if you, if you came back to those same people and you said, okay, well, let me ask you this then. Do you see anything kind of like the second beast or this false prophet? Do you see any, I don't know, people or systems or structures that are trying to get you to bow the knee in worship? to Rome or the emperor. I said, well, of course we do. We see it everywhere we go. <laughs> right? There's no city in Rome that you can go to that doesn't have this temple or this shrine that's dedicated to Rome and to worship of the emperor. Right? There's temples that have priests and have religious personnel that are there to help you make your offerings and pay your tributes to Rome. Or there's no city you can go to where there aren't images fashioned of the emperor. And the gods. And then there's no city where there doesn't have, I don't know, these festivals and celebrations put on by the rich and the powerful and the elite. Where they, they parade these images through the town and they call everybody out to come and to burn pinches of incense. And to make sacrifices and offerings and tributes to the gods on behalf of the emperor. Everywhere we go, everything that we do, there's nothing in our life that can escape that. Whether it's our family, our neighborhood, whether it's our jobs with all of their patron deities. You know, and what they would say is, you know, there's this whole religion of Rome called the imperial cult. And it didn't always just have rituals and temples and festivities, but it had bold theological claims as well, too. Right? Rome had this theological claim that it was chosen by the gods. And that it was chosen by the gods to be uh, the agents of the gods' reign and will and purpose, even salvation to the ends of the earth. Right? And part of its other theological claim was that as you bowed the knee to Rome and you submitted to their reign and to their authority, then you became a recipient of the blessings of the gods. Peace, prosperity, fertility, security, whatever, all this stuff. 
And if you didn't, well, let me see what happens in the text. You know, the beast erupts this image, breathes life into the image, calls for the worship of the image. And if you don't, the image has power to even slay those who wouldn't. Right? It's almost like, and we're going to see this as we continue to work through the book, but it's almost like the beast or, or room, if you will, is being set up as quite literally like the anti-Christ character in this book, right? Christ and his church are given authority and are chosen by God to extend his reign and his will and his purpose and to deliver the blessings of God to the nation. Well, that's exactly the theological claims that Rome would make. We're chosen. We're the agents of the God sent to represent his reign, his authority, his power, his salvation. And as you bow the knee and worship us, you become recipients of God's blessing. And if you don't, ha, we got a problem. Okay, but then here's the other thing we talked about last week, and this is where it gets challenging for us, right? We noticed how in the book of Revelation, this beast, right, these empires, it's not one solitary historic figure or not one solitary historic king, kingdom, empire. We tend to think Antichrist is one person, right? But John in his other letters, he's told you, I'm telling you, there are multiple antichrists that have already come and will continue to come, right? And that's the point in Revelation. This beast is the beast who was, who is not, perhaps for a time, and will yet again rise from the beast, from the abyss, and perhaps go to his destruction, and then rise again from the, from the abyss, and receive a mortal wound and go to his destruction, and then rise again. In other words, this is how Satan works. Through the whole 42 months, says the text. Through the whole three and a half years, 1260 days, times, time, and half a time, right? This symbolic period of time, denoting the time the church is out in the wilderness because the dragon is in a fit of rage and is waging war. Here's how he wages that war. He gives his power to kingdoms, kings, empires. And then he raises up this false prophets to come along. Systems, people, whatever it is, to point your worship towards those power systems, right? And so the book, would have, the book of Revelation would have readers throughout the church age to ask that same other question. Do I see Satan working in this way? And look, here's the thing. Anytime we ask that question, it can be easy for us to say, oh, yeah, sure, I see that going on in the world today. Uh, look, look way over in, you know, Eastern Asia, right? I can see that, well, you know, North Korea, what's that guy's name? Kim Jong-un or, or whatever, right? He's claiming full sovereignty, right? Obviously, maybe a son of the divine, whatever. And he's got all these systems to get people to bow down and worship and unquestioned allegiance to him. Or China, right? You want to be a church in China? Okay, great. Sure, you can be a church, but you got to go register with the state. And we're going to make sure that you pledge allegiance to the Communist Party and that you pay tribute and you exalt the, the chairman of the Communist Party, right? The president of China. Quite easy to see it over there. Not so inclined to see it maybe closer to home. Well, or maybe if we did, if we were going to look closer to home, we could say, okay, maybe I can see how, you know, the nation I'm a part of, maybe in our past, we had, you know, 
empiric ambitions maybe. Or maybe in our past we looked a little Romish when we, you know, kind of came in, conquered new territories and dispossessed the people that lived there or whatever and did it with, you know, as it was our manifest destiny or our divine mandate to do so. Or, yeah, well, sure, maybe in our past, you know, we can look at the way, uh, you know, our nation was, or certain parts at least of the nation was built, built up on the backs of slave labor like Rome was. And unfortunately, we can look back there and we can see priests and prophets and pastors who are saying, this is divinely ordained. You know, or we can look, you know, yeah, sort of maybe throughout history and we can see these systems that were put in place to segregate people and give blessings to one people and withhold blessings to the other. And unfortunately, yes, we can see churches that were lobbying hard, right? And the religious establishment lobbying hard to keep that the way it was, to keep that the status quo. Okay, right, but that's all in the past. Certainly that none of that's going on now. Right. Again, like, like hindsight is always twenty twenty, whereas our view to the present is often blurry. Or as Jesus would say, it's very easy for us to see real clearly the tiny little speck in people way out there, but miss the gaping log in our own eye. Which is all to say that <laughs> I feel like the book of Revelation would say to us, look, if you would be of the mindset that, oh, this dragon has no interest in the most powerful (laughs) nation, kingdom, whatever, that the world's ever known. Or that all of the blessings that we enjoy as American citizens and people of this great is, is all just blessings that have come from God because he has chosen us to be his agents of truth and of his kingdom and his purpose, maybe even his salvation. But none of that could possibly be the beast who, or the dragon who would love to give his power and authority to kingdoms and empires and would love to get us, however possible, to be enthralled and enamored and bow down and worship to that. Right? If that would be of your, your mindset, you could never possibly imagine that. The book of Revelation would, would call you to wisdom. Would call you to say, hold on a second. Let me pull that curtain back a little bit further. Let me show you how the dragon works for the whole 42 months. And let me call you to wisdom and discernment. Let me call you when when you hear, I don't know, God and country talk. And you say, well, that's that's nice because we worship the true God, not the gods of Rome. Yeah, okay, but maybe. Or when you hear this strange term that's circulating in political uh, circles these days, and you're hearing it in speeches now and in churches now, this, this term of Christian nationalism, like this weird merger of the Christian way of life and the American way of life somehow coming together, right? When you hear that, Revelation might just call you to, uh, huh. or, you know, when you hear talk of like this business of life and liberty and human freedom and the pursuit of happiness. These are divine, inalienable rights that have been given to us by God himself. And God has called and chosen our nation to be the last great defender of, of these things and to you know, carry that to the ends of the earth, whatever. Right? When you hear that language, okay, maybe. But man, there should be some discernment and wisdom in that. And again, hear me out. I'm not saying... That God hasn't been gracious and doesn't bestow blessings on this place where we call home. Or I'm not saying that God is not concerned with life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness and all those things. 
All I'm saying is, and, and it might be that God has entrusted, you know, great resources and blessings to us, right? But what Satan would love nothing more than is for you to see that and then to baptize the whole thing. This is a divine operation. Baptize the whole thing and sanctify the whole thing and think the whole thing is God's will and intention. Or in other words, to baptize the American way of life and say, well, clearly that's God's way of life. And so we don't have to have discernment, wisdom, and see where maybe lines are getting blurred. Right? Revelation wants to pull that curtain and wants to call followers of Christ through all the ages to pure, undiluted worship and exaltation of who Christ is and to call you out of anything any system, any kingdom, any homeland, anything, whatever it is, that might command your worship and your allegiance or your devotion a little bit more. This is where Revelation gets a little bit uh, you know, controversial because they always say, well, you never mix religion and politics. Revelation does it all over the place. <laughs> Revelation is all about giving you the most glorious visions and pictures of who Christ is to captivate your worship, right? To give you a joy and a delight in worshiping Christ above all else. And worship is, and and Revelation is all about exposing false systems and painting them as hideous dragons that would scare the daylights out of you so that you wouldn't be tempted to bow the knee in any way to that. And again, if we're reading Revelation rightly here, uh, part of the significant ways that the beast, that the dragon does that is he gives his power to kings, kingdoms, empires. And so you just got to watch out for that. Got to make sure that we're not baptizing an American way of life as the Christian way of life. And be a little bit more discerning, a little more wise. There's a lot more we could say about that, a lot more examples we could talk about that. Come talk to me if you want to. The book of Revelation will get there uh, as we go further along. But that brings us to where we started at the end of the chapter, where you know, then we find out that this beast is going around stamping people with his mark, 666. I mean, I could take you to the, uh, the start of the Eagles game here or to the halftime of the Eagles game or whatever, going through all the people, all the characters throughout history that 666 has been attributed to. Every Roman emperor has been, you know, calculated 666. Every Roman pope has been calculated 666. Martin Luther of the Protestant Reformation, that, you can find him out 666 to every, well, I don't know, half a dozen modern American presidents, Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, to even non-figures like the vaccine. Or for me, like when I was out in non-Philadelphia places and all these people were selling these knockoff sandwiches that they called cheesesteaks. Tasted nothing like the real thing. It was clearly a counterfeit. And all these people were loving it. Worse, oh, look at this mark of the beast. <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting a little, little anime. Is it hot in here? <laughs> Point is, uh, we're not going to do that this morning because... Generally, that's not what you do with numbers in the book of Revelation. You don't get out your decoder key and try to figure this out. Uh, for us to see the bigger picture, I think the bigger picture is much, is much more obvious. Right? Why is he marking people, stamping it? It's because Jesus does. We already saw that earlier in the book. Jesus marks and seals his people with his divine name on their foreheads. And right, and the counterfeit, knockoff, trinity. Said, Ooh, that's a good idea. I'm going to do that too. All right? And 
you know, if we could imagine Jesus having a number or God having a number that he would put on his people, well, one number we might imagine would be a number composed of sevens, right? The number of fullness, the number of completion, the number of per- perfection all throughout the scriptures. So huh, no surprise, the beast tries to do the same thing and all he can come up with six, six, six. It's close, dangerously close even, but not the real thing. Part of what makes this, this passage difficult is because it says, you know, it calls for wisdom. This is a number of a man. But the problem is, at least in all of our English translations, but in the Greek, there's no definite article there. It's not of a man. It's just of man. Or what I and many other commentators would think, a number of humanity or a number of fallen humanity that erects these systems and these power structures or whatever to captivate your worship. Uh, maybe the best way I saw to define it comes from actually the African Bible commentary, one volume, but in the book of Revelation, Onesimus Nagundu says this, the mark of the beast, 666, seems to be near perfection and almost messianic. It is, after all, a caricature of the lamb who was slain. But it's not perfect, and that makes all the difference. It is actually utterly and diabolically opposed to God. The number 666 represents a threefold falling short of perfection, dragon, beast, and false prophet. But it is close to perfection and has most of the hallmarks of truth and so can easily deceived. No wonder, he says, wisdom is required. And can you see why that's the main imperative? Right? The main interest of the book. Don't get the mark. Don't get the mark of the beast. Right? Even if it comes at a cost to you. Even if it means that you can't enjoy life to the full, or even if it means that you're going to be marked, mocked and ridiculed and criticized because your highest allegiance and devotion is Christ, and there are times where you pull out of the American way of life to be a more faithful follower of Christ. Don't get the mark. Stay faithful to the king, because there is where your true life is going to be found. There is where your ultimate salvation, your blessing, your security, your hope, your eternal hope is going to be found. Don't get the mark. And you need wisdom and discernment to do that. Uh, Maybe so briefly, I'll just say, you know, so what does that look like? That could be another whole sermon itself, but I think we know. I think part of it means, man, we'd be devoted students of the word. Right? Because, again, the book of Revelation, the, the, the concern is that you would see Christ clearly in all of his glory and all of his power and all of his majesty, and that you would see the counterfeits and the knockoffs clearly as well, too. And how do you do that? How do you see Christ clearly? You soak yourself in the word that he's given to you, his divine self-revelation, where he says, here I am, come find me here. I was at a funeral over the weekend. Uh... Actually, Joanna Brown, they've been worshiping here, Joanna and Henry, her grandfather died, who actually happened to be an elder of the church I was at previously. And you could say a lot of things, great things. He was a special guy, loved the Phillies, <laughs> but he loved Jesus even more. And, and that love for Jesus made him a devoted student of the word. He couldn't get enough of the word, saturated with it, could quote all sorts of verses all the way through it, right? He loved to study it. He loved to understand it. He loved to submit himself to it. He loved to teach it. He was always calling us to make sure, let's teach the word. Let's teach the word more because in the word we find Jesus. And the thing is, he might not have been, you know, super ultra sophisticated theologian. I might have even differed with him on various theological issues from time to time. But at the end of the day, 
you can't question for one moment how deeply he loved Christ because of how he come to know him through the word. And I'm pretty sure that Satan might as well just have given up in terms of knocking this guy off track from his mission and his calling. Right? Because he had found Christ so richly in the word. He had come to develop such a love for Christ, such a joy in following and submitting his life and even sacrificing his life to him. That there was no way on earth that any dragon was going to knock him off of his mission to represent Christ and to live for his kingdom. And that's what we're invited to this morning as well, too. So we find Christ in his word. We find Christ in the ministry of the word, in the ministry of the spirit with one another in the church. Man, that's so important. We talked about that last week. Please don't ever buy the lie that wisdom and discernment is an individual pursuit and that you can do that on your own because you can't. It requires the spirit who has dispersed himself among God's people and then called us all together to minister and to convict and to challenge and refine and purify the church. Again, this is where I get my notion of what the church is. We're we're the people who are called together to not only advance the glory of Christ, but to continually, I don't know if you call it group therapy, but group, group sanctification, purifying us of any false worship, false allegiance, anything else that we might be attempted to bow the knee to so that our witness might shine all the more brilliantly. If you're here and you're curious about Christianity, if you're curious about Christ, but you don't know, and you're here in Revelation, like what in the world is going on there? Maybe the simple point for you this morning is Please remember, you were made to be a worshiper. You were made to worship, exalt, delight in the most glorious of things. And there is a spiritual enemy out there that would love to take you off course from that. And would like to dangle in front of you lesser things to draw your attention that way and lead you out into the nothing. Lead you out into, the de- into death. There is one who is far more glorious, who created you, who knows you, who died for you in love and invites you back into that life-giving worship of him alone. And to the rest of us, I want to remind you that as you go out and you face this opposition, remember, you, you go out not just with a false prophet waging against you, but you go out armed with the spirit as well, too, who is with you to guide to encourage, to comfort, to point you always back to Christ, your faithful king who has died for you, who has secured for you your internal inheritance and will be with you every step of the way until you receive full possession of it. Amen? Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.